Well, before we jump into Lecture 3, I, I think it might be helpful to give a brief review of what we covered last night. I know some of you weren't here. Um, we talked about the fact that, according to studies at least, um, more people watch others, the more people watch others cooking on TV, the less people actually cook themselves. The rise of the Food Network and celebrity cooking shows has coincided with um, a significant spike in takeout orders. In some cases, it's, it's as if people prefer a digital meal to an actual meal. And, and so we called this food porn. In the words of C.S. Lewis, something has gone wrong with our appetite for food. We have forgotten what food is for, what feasting is for. But in Lecture 2 last night, we did, we did a quick survey of the Bible to see um, that hospitality and feasting have always, from Genesis to Revelation, been central to the mission of God. The exact nature of his redeeming love toward mankind has always taken the form of hospitality and feasting. So today we're going we're gonna to start by talking about worship, the church's liturgy, um, which, if we really stop to think about it, is designed to highlight the hospitality of God to us. Every Sunday, we are the recipients of divine hospitality. And after we move our way through the liturgy, uh, lecture four will be about the liturgy after the liturgy, whereby the church extends that divine hospitality, the hospitality of God to others. Um, All right. Christian worship is divine hospitality. Having spent the week building God's kingdom, loving neighbors, disciplining children, casting our anxieties, pursuing vocations, fighting temptations, contending in prayer, bearing the weight of the brokenness of the world, the Lord welcomes us into His house. And He receives our confession and He extends His pardon. He washes us. He cleans us up. He instructs us, he hears our petitions, and of course he communes with us at his table. The, the Sunday liturgy dramatizes the hospitality of God. We begin with a call to worship. Whether you have a highly structured and scripted liturgy, um, or whether your service simply begins with a welcome from a pastor, all Christian worship is initiated by, by a hospitable welcome. The real question is whether our liturgy draws attention to the fact that the ultimate source of this welcome is God himself. So we we show up on Sunday mornings having been invited. And when we arrive, we see others who have likewise been invited. According to Jeff Myers, God summons us from heaven to assemble. We do not decide to gather together and then ask God to be present. There is no invocation at the beginning of the service. To invoke God's presence may be suitable before a football game or a session of Congress, but it makes no sense at the start of a Sunday service. This is the Lord's day. We don't gather together and ask him to be with us. He commands us from heaven to enter into his presence, and we respond in obedience as the Spirit effectually enables us. In the church's liturgy, in in God's house, At the Lord's table, 
there's, there's really no need for us to wonder whether God is truly present. Or, or whether that invitation to me personally was a mistake. Or, or maybe a pity invite. He doesn't do that. Or maybe he only does that. Um, the only reason anybody shows up is because of God. It's because God, the Lord of the universe, desires our presence and has invited us into his presence. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Then the king said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a royal feast. And we are those who have been called from the street corners, called from the four corners of the earth, both bad and good, to feast with the king and his son. Not by our own merits, but by the gracious, hospitable welcome of God. What follows the call to worship is, it's subtle, but but I do think it's important and worth noting. We are collected. We, We are gathered up. We pray together. We sing together. We kneel together. We stand together. We clap together. We listen together. We eat together. And and through these these corporate actions, we are transformed from a throng into a multitude or from just a crowd to a people. And this shared experience ought, ought to deepen that sense of belonging. I belong to these people. Not, not only have we been invited by the host, we also belong to the community. This is what, this is really what all good hosts do. They welcome us in and then they, and then they deepen and extend that welcome by connecting us with others. I, I suspect we all know what it's like to maybe attend a party in which you are seemingly the one person who doesn't know anybody else. That's a weird feeling. That's an awkward feeling. Sure, you were invited, but upon arrival, it's clear, it's clear that you don't fully belong there. And so you become hyper aware of where you're standing and, and how you're standing and what you're saying. Perhaps you grab a drink just to have something in your hands, right? Or perhaps you start walking around the room pretending to be interested in the artwork on the walls. This is how many people feel when they visit a church for the first time, by the way. And and we need to be aware of that. But what you need in that moment is a good host. Someone to say, oh, hey, Drew, um, this is so-and-so. He's also a fan of the Astros. Or he also likes pretending to enjoy artwork. (laughs) You guys would get along great. That's what a good host does. He does not merely extend an invite. A good host is able to transform that crowd into a body, to a body of people. So, I think we should take care to 
see to it that our worship gives expression to God's identity as the host of hosts. We do not attend the Sunday liturgy as auditors. We attend the Sunday liturgy as full participants in that liturgy. God wants us to be active and engaged. We, we enter into the room, we may enter into the room as individuals, but God transforms us into a body. So next we move into a time of confession. As we step into God's house, our, our brokenness and our injustice and our rivalry and our violence, our selfishness, our greed, our personal and corporate transgressions, all of that is revealed and exposed before the bright brilliance of a holy God. And in response to that revelation, that revealing, we could opt out. We could decline the invite and refuse the welcome and the hospitality of God. That's, that's one way to hide our shame in that moment. But another way is to find some fresh fig leaves, fancy clothes or righteous deeds or, or carefully manufactured reputation. But those are, are poor substitutions for what we should actually be doing in that moment. Um, true confession. When God invites us into his house, he, he invites us with our sin. He knows it. He knows us. He knows full well who he's inviting. That, that's what makes his hospitality so gracious. But it's nonetheless true that we need to accept the Lord's cleansing before we come to his table. Jesus washed his disciples' feet prior to the supper. And even today, he, he washes us of sin as we approach the table. You see, the, the welcome of God does not come at the expense of honesty. There's no pretense at the table of the Lord. The, the liturgy is not a masquerade. Many people today feel as though the, um, the contemporary church has become, in some ways, a facade, a place in which to pretend that we are better than we really are. And to the extent that this assessment is rooted in something real, the church is believing a lie, a pernicious lie. That the proper response to God's hospitality is a phony self-righteousness. It's a lie. And the implication is that God is a liar. Although he has invited us into his house, he doesn't really want us there. We're just, we're just too messy and sinful. But again, this, this forestalls the cultivation of, of true humility in us. And it tarnishes the church's reputation in the world. Confession is what counters that lie. When we confess our sins before God, we voluntarily expose ourselves to that bright brilliance. We are coming as sinners and we know it and, and we're willing to say it. And in doing so, and in doing so together, we discover to, to our great relief that our brothers and sisters are also sinners. And we discover to our even greater relief that God has known all of that all along, and he knew it when he invited us. So confession is how 
we expose the lie of, of positivity. Over the years, uh, I've heard many Christians complain that confessing sin within the liturgy is just too negative. Why is it so dark? Why, why do we focus on our sin so much when we worship? Worship should not be somber. It should be positive and joyful and energetic. right? And there's an element of truth to that. Our worship should be positive and joyful and energetic. But the question is, how do we get there? How do we arrive at all of the positivity and joy and energy in worship? And the answer is by way of confession. Confession is how we put an end to the charade and the sham. Confession is our ticket to the feast. Our our ticket to a life of true joy and gladness. Confession is what seats us at the table with a Messiah who eats and drinks with sinners. And this is true because our God is a, a merciful and loving God. We come as we are, but but God does not leave us that way. He cleans us up. Immediately following the confession, we receive the announcement of forgiveness and pardon. And so we have come to the house of the host of hosts, and the worst thing we could have we we could have happen has happened. We've been exposed for, for who we really are and what we really are. And in response, God has re-extended his welcome. We're exposed, and yet in that moment, he he re-extends that invitation. Even going so far as to provide a remedy for that problem in the death of his son. This This is a big grace. And so we are called... We are collected, we confess, and now we are consecrated. They all have C's, if you haven't noticed. Um, there's a meal at the heart of Christian worship. but This, this meal is different than many other meals. Um, but this difference does not, does not distinguish God's hospitality from our own. The, the, the difference does not make worship less applicable to our lived experience. Rather, this this difference ought to inform the manner in which we extend hospitality in our own homes. We should consider how to come into greater conformity with the pattern established in the liturgy when we are welcoming others to our table. So what's, what's the difference? The difference is consecration. Consecration is the part of the liturgy in which the Holy Spirit transforms us consecrates us, sanctifies us, glorifies us. We rise from our confession, we are absolved of our sin, and we begin to experience the positivity and the joy and the energy of being in God's presence. The host of hosts speaks to us. We hear the Bible read aloud. We have it explained and illuminated in the sermon. And this word, according to Hebrews 4, is a two-edged sword which divides flesh and bone. God's word is like a knife in the hand of a priest in the temple of Yahweh. His word kills us, cuts us up, and lays us upon an altar of fire. 
we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice in worship. This consecration, sanctification, transformation, it's, it's akin to what Moses experienced on Mount Sinai. When Moses ascended into the presence of God, he wasn't merely forgiven. He wasn't merely commissioned. On Mount Sinai, Moses was transformed. When he comes down from the presence of God, his face is luminous. And so the consecrating hospitality of God is meant to mark us as people who have heard from and feasted with the Lord. So again, in in lecture four, we'll be talking about the liturgy after the liturgy. We'll be talking about extending the hospitality of God by welcoming others into our homes and by feasting with them at our tables. But the goal there is not merely to increase the number of times you open your home. This idea of consecration ought to challenge the manner in which we host. Consecration, when applied to our dinner tables, suggests that there should be a certain quality to our hosting. Through prayer and scripture and genuine love and fellowship, we should endeavor to send our guests home transformed, consecrated in some sense. But keep in mind, um, this, is, this is not an instantaneous one-time transformation. That's not how it works in the liturgy. In the liturgy, that transformation is a lifelong process, week after week, one degree of glory to the next. And so we can afford to play the long game with our neighbors. But, but ultimately, we do hope to be transformed and we do hope to, be a, to participate in the transformation of others. Okay, call, collect, confess, consecrate, and commune. So we're talking about the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, or the Eucharist, the sacrament of bread and wine which Christ instituted on the night when he was betrayed. God has always desired to feast with us. And so Christian worship crescendos with a feast. It is, it is a cold hospitality that does not offer food and drink. And, and God is no cold host. He offers food and drink. But every meal is about more than food. God is not merely concerned with the nutrients in the bread and the wine. God wants a real meal. Nobody nobody pats their belly with satisfaction and leans back in their chair after taking their vitamins. What makes a meal a meal is the way in which a, a common life of love is shared among those who partake of the food. True feasting is meant to bring us together because in sharing that food, we're really sharing ourselves. And this is how God designed it to work. Feasting comes from the life and the mind of the triune God. God is himself a feast. The three persons are constantly and mutually giving and receiving, creating and sharing, loving and glorifying, saying, my life for yours. That's the motto of the Lord's Supper. My life for yours. And we learn that from the triune God. 
Um, toward the end of the medieval period, the church began to think about the Eucharist in terms of substances instead of thinking in terms of persons. This, this produced a lot of confusion. The, the substances matter, of course, but by focusing on the substances, we miss the, we can miss the importance of what's truly happening. Whether we, whether we understand it or not, when we come to the table of the Lord, the, the bread and the wine serve as the medium through which we commune with Christ and one another. What happens to the bread and what happens to the wine is a secondary concern relative to what happens to us in relation to Christ. Again, it's, it's first of all about persons, people. When God welcomes us into his house, he feeds us at his table. And when he feeds us at his table, he feeds us with the best food he can imagine, which is himself. Now, before we move on, I, I want to I say one more thing about the Lord's Supper. I think that to partake of the Lord's Supper is to assume before God a certain degree of responsibility for hospitable living. I've implied this or said something like it a, a couple of times, but uh, I will defend it now. Um, in Romans chapter 12, Paul appeals to us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, singular. The church is to present her many bodies as a singular sacrifice. And, and when does the church do this if not within the liturgy, when the church is gathered? Now, Augustine teaches that new covenant sacrifices like the one in Romans 12, are sacrifices in the truest sense. They are are not like old covenant sacrifices, which were merely types and shadows of what we have in the new covenant. Under the old covenant, worshipers were never permitted to draw near to God in the way that new covenant worshipers are. Old covenant worshipers had to rely on animals to serve as substitutes. But now, through, through the once and for all sacrifice of the Lamb of God, we are qualified to draw near on his merits. And, and more than that, we no longer have to rely on animals as substitutes. Because of Jesus, we can actually offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. We don't have to send an animal in for us. We can offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are, we are feasting on the body of Christ, which was sacrificed for us. But that's not all we're doing. We're also presenting our own bodies as a singular living sacrifice. At the table, Jesus offers himself to us, and we offer ourselves to him. Joseph Ratzinger you guys mind if I quote a Catholic? Just one, I'll just do it one time. Um, Joseph Ratzinger went so far as to say that we become a Eucharist with Christ. So if we are a, a living sacrifice, 
then the Apostle Paul wants us to be a living sacrifice without blemish. Which is why he goes on to describe a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God. For a living sacrifice to be holy and acceptable, it must be a fully functioning, healthy Christian community. Remember, it's many bodies, one sacrifice. A holy and acceptable living sacrifice is a church full of members who have been transformed by the renewal of their minds. It's a church full of members who can discern the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's a church full of members who build up the body with their variety of gifts, who love one another, who abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good, who outdo one another in showing honor, who are zealous and fervent in spirit, who rejoice in hope, who are patient in tribulation, who are constant in prayer, who contribute to the needs of the saints, and who seek to show hospitality, he says. So, to summarize all of that, in the liturgy, we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. And part of what that means, part of what it means to be a holy and acceptable sacrifice to God is that we seek to show hospitality. So to partake of the Lord's Supper is to assume a a certain degree of responsibility for hospitable living. We receive the hospitality of God and then we extend that hospitality to others. Call, collect, confess, consecrate, commune, Commission. The, lit- the liturgy concludes with a commission, a benediction. We are, we are sent out to extend the hospitality of God. We have been called. Our sins have been exposed. We have confessed. We have been forgiven and transformed and consecrated. We have feasted with the host of hosts. And now we are sent in the same manner. We are to be hospitable like God is hospitable. And in so doing, we are to gather those who do not yet know the hospitality of God. We are to extend the invite. Christian evangelism is fundamentally an an invitation to a feast. The feast. We'll talk about that more in lecture four. But, But before we break... Um, Let's turn to to Luke 22. I'm going to start in verse 14. All right. Luke 22, 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute. Same meal, same table. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. All right, so Jesus is reconstituting the Passover feast with his disciples. He's taking something they're very familiar with and he's putting a new spin on it. He's he's talking about giving his body. He's talking about pouring out his blood. He's talking about being betrayed. He's talking about his own suffering. And and right then and there, at the very first communion meal, the, the disciples start arguing about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, For who is the greater one who reclines who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. The kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, there, there is no one greater than Christ. We agree with that, right? But in Luke twenty two, Christ is among his disciples, as one who serves. In other words, Jesus is, is in this sense, elevating his disciples above himself. Just as the Father gives the kingdom to the Son, so the Son gives the kingdom to his disciples. And, and this is part of what happens, part of what's happening when we partake of the Lord's Supper. As we recline at table... And as Christ meets us there as our humble host and servant, Jesus is treating us as his superiors. He's treating us like kings and he's, and he's giving us the kingdom. To borrow a phrase from Paul's letter to the Philippians, in humility, Jesus counts others more significant than himself. That, that same Greek word is used to describe the Roman emperor and other governing authorities. More significant. That's, that's truly astonishing. But Jesus is not just granting this authority and giving this kingdom so that, so that we can keep it to ourselves. He didn't keep it to himself, thank God. Jesus is teaching his disciples to serve the way he serves. If you truly want to be great, he says, 
I hear, I hear what you're saying. If you truly want to be great, be among others as one who serves. So to sum all that up, in Christian worship, through the liturgy, we are welcomed and forgiven and, and consecrated and elevated to a place of authority. And what do Christians do with authority? Same thing Jesus does with authority. We lead with strength, but we lead with the kind of strength that's secure enough to serve. Strong and secure enough to promote and to elevate others, the other people around us. We, we, we tend to, to polarize liturgy and mission. Um, is the Sunday service for Christians or non-Christians? Liturgy or mission? We, we tend to think about worship and evangelism as, as two distinct things. But as I, I hope we'll see in the final lecture, liturgy and mission are a one-two punch. This is, this is a two-part movement. Because there's an, there is an essential liturgy after the liturgy. And without it, it is incomplete. 